Well, our scripture reading this morning is going to be from Philippians 4, verses 2 to 9. In our church Bibles, that's page 923. If you don't have a Bible with you, just raise your hand. Our ushers at the door would love to bring one to you. If you don't own one, then please keep it. This is our gift to you. All right, Philippians 4, verses 2 to 9. Hear what Holy Scripture says. I entreat Euodia, and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, If there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. This is the word of the Lord. Please pray with me. Lord, as we all sit here, Father, under the authority of your word, God, I pray that you'd help us to see this morning that it's your word that we're sanctified by, Father. Lord, help us to see that the authority is not in me as a weak and broken vessel, but God, it's your word that has the power to change our lives and to make us more like you. So Father, help us to look to your word. Help us to treasure it. And would you bless us this morning? Amen. I have a lot of siblings. I've got two sisters and two brothers, and when we were growing up, our home felt pretty chaotic. Clothes were everywhere, somebody was always arguing with somebody, and one of us was always crying. I remember one day in particular, we were eating dinner together, and after my dad left the room, we loaded up our forks with mac and cheese and flung it as hard as we could at the ceiling to see who could get it to stick. My dad wasn't too happy about that one. Like most kids, our natural inclination was towards chaos and disorder. But as we grew up, our parents taught us to live a more orderly and peaceful life. And this really isn't all that different from what happens with us as Christians. When we come to Jesus, we don't come to him having it all together. We come to him as a mess, with our hearts in turmoil and our lives in disarray. But as we mature... And as we grow in the faith, God slowly changes the direction of our lives from moving towards chaos to pursuing peace. Now, the reason I say God slowly changes us is because for as long as we're in the flesh, our sinful inclination will be towards chaos. But by the grace of God, he's given us his word to teach us to live with peace. Our passage this morning is Philippians 4, 2-9. And what I want you to see here is that God's desire for your life is to pursue peace. 
And this morning, we're going to learn how to pursue peace in three ways. The first way to pursue peace is to pursue peace in your relationships. Look again at verses 2 to 3. I entreat you, Odia, and I entreat Sentiki to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. What we've been laboring to show you over the past few weeks is that the theme of the book of Philippians is joyfully striving together for the gospel. In chapter 1, verse 27, Paul says to stand firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. In chapter 2, verse 2, he tells them to complete his joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, and being in full accord. So we know that Paul wants them to live together in unity. But when you read exhortations like this in the Bible, you have to ask why. Why is Paul saying these words to this people at this time? Well, if he's telling them to have unity, it's because they aren't doing a very good job of that. If someone tells you that you need to put air in your tires, it's because they're low. If someone tells you that you need to take a shower, it's because you smell bad. And likewise, if Paul is telling the Philippians to be of one mind, it's because right now, they're not. There's problems going on in this church. The members and leaders are divided and it's wreaking havoc on the body. These two women, Yodia and Syntyche, were some of Paul's earliest co-labors when he planted the church in Philippi. When he first came there years before, they were some of his earliest companions. They were doing the hard work of church planting and laboring with him for the advancement of the gospel. But somewhere along the line, they lost their way. They aren't behaving like co-laborers anymore. They're behaving like rivals who can't seem to agree with one another. Something's come up, something's happened, and their fellowship has been broken. Remember when you were a kid and you did something wrong? Sometimes your parents would call you by your full name and you knew it was serious. I remember when I heard my parents say, Justin Ray Newsom. I'd be like, uh-oh, I messed up. This is serious. The fact that Paul mentions these two women by name tells us that this situation likewise is serious. As leaders in their community, the conflict between these two women is not just affecting them, It's affecting the whole body. Their brothers and sisters are feeling the effects of the lack of peace in their relationship so much so that Paul has to ask a third-party mediator to come in and help them resolve it. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women. I mean, think about it. Can you imagine how jarring it would be if two of our founding members were in a conflict with each other that wasn't getting resolved? If some of the people who helped to lay the very foundation of your faith were now at odds with each other? That's serious, friends. And it has implications for the whole church. The whole body feels it when there's a lack of peace between its members. Now, it's easy for us to look at Yodia and Syntyche and look down on them and say, come on, guys. You're being ridiculous. Just make up already. We'd all like to think that we're more mature than this and we're past these petty rivalries and conflicts. But the reality is, when any group of people are together for long enough, conflict is inevitable. Church, if you haven't had conflict with anyone at GFC yet, then praise God. 
but don't be surprised if it happens because odds are at some point it will. So when Paul urges Yodia and Syntyche to agree, he's not saying that we should never experience conflict, but that when conflict does arise, to pursue peace in your relationships. Labor to resolve the matter in a way that's pleasing to God. Sometimes, though, it's, it's not so much that we're getting into these big blowout disagreements with others. It can be a lot more subtle. Sometimes a lack of peace in our relationships can be uh, less like a blowout fight and more like a box jellyfish. I'll explain. <laughs> if you've ever been to a beach in Australia, you've probably seen a warning sign telling you to be cautious while you're swimming. The reason is because of the box jellyfish. The box jellyfish has some of the most powerful venom of any animal in the world. Once it stings, the toxins in its venom spread quickly, attacking your nervous system and making their way to your heart. Some people, after being stung, can go into shock or even experience heart failure. And this alone is pretty scary, but if you ask me, the scariest thing about a box jellyfish is that it's almost completely invisible underwater. Its body is transparent like a piece of glass in a window, so before it gets you, you'll never even notice before it's too late. In church, sometimes a divisive attitude can be just like this. It's so subtle and indistinct that you almost can't even tell it's there. Like when we come together as a church and there's certain people that we actively avoid. Or when we slowly stop seeing each other as the family of God and we allow a spirit of rivalry to overtake our hearts. Or when we feel so strongly about our theological and political opinions that we make others feel alienated just for disagreeing with us. Or when we make comments about others that fall just short of gossip so we're sure we won't be rebuked. Just like a box jellyfish, these things can be hard to detect in ourselves and in others, but if you allow it to linger and spread, it can do a lot of damage. Church, if we're going to pursue peace in our relationships, then we need to remember why it's important to agree. Remember what Paul says in chapter 1, verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Church, if we're living in unity with each other, and we have peace in our relationships, then we are living as worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We live as worthy of the good news. So if you're here this morning and you love Jesus and your name is written forever in the book of life, know that you who were once an enemy of God has been made his friend through the blood of Jesus and let your life be a clear image of the kind of peace that God first made with you and now calls you to live out in your relationships. But we don't need, just need to pursue peace externally in our relationships. We also need to pursue peace internally. And that brings us to the next section of our text. The second way to pursue peace is to pursue peace 
in our hearts and minds. Look again with me at verses 4 to 7. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Have you ever had anybody try to tell you how to feel? When Sarah and I were first married, we were in a pretty tough spot. Sarah was in between jobs. I was only working part-time at a paint store. And both of us were having a really hard time finding full-time work in the middle of the pandemic. And as things were, we were barely able to cover our expenses. I remember both of us feeling very anxious for our lives. We knew in our heads that God was going to provide for us, but it was really hard to believe that in our hearts. And if I'm being honest, I I wasn't always super helpful as a husband. Sarah's always been really helpful in comforting me when I've been anxious, but it took me a little while to get there myself. Sometimes when she'd be wrestling with anxiety, I'd be trying to comfort her and I'd just say, don't be anxious. Just don't be anxious. I was trying to be helpful, but in reality, as we all know, that's not helpful at all. And sometimes even we do that to ourselves. We tell ourselves, don't be nervous or don't be afraid. But statements like that don't really do anything because we can't just tell ourselves how to feel. That's like telling water not to be wet or the sky not to be blue. It just doesn't work. Nothing changes. Nothing happens. When we're anxious, the way to pursue peace in your hearts and minds is not by telling ourselves, just be at peace. Just be at peace, Justin. We pursue peace in our hearts and minds by grabbing hold of what's true and by praying with thanksgiving. Verse 6 says, do not be anxious. Friends, anxiety can be a real struggle for many of us. It can all too easily rule over our hearts and minds. And it won't go away just because we tell it to. We can get stuck in these awful thought cycles where the same few anxious thoughts circle in our minds over and over again. I can't tell you how many nights myself I've laid awake for hours with the same few worries running through my mind over and over. It's like sitting under a waterfall that keeps pouring and pouring and it makes you feel like you're drowning. And I know that like me, many of you can wrestle with anxious thoughts and emotions as well. Rent and inflation keep skyrocketing. You're not sure how you're going to keep living in the city. Your children are getting older, but they aren't showing any interest in the things of God, and you're just not sure what to do anymore. Your chronic health issues keep getting worse and worse, and it just seems like there's no end in sight. Church, there are times when our anxiety can go beyond just a lack of trust in God. It may be because we're wrestling with an anxiety disorder, and if that's the case, then it's good for us to seek help from counselors who can help us to understand what's going on in our hearts. But a lot of times when we're anxious, it's because our vision of God has become all too small. If we're going to pursue peace in our hearts 
and minds, then we need to remind ourselves of the grand and glorious truths of our Savior. Verse 5 says, the Lord is at hand. Another way of saying it is, Jesus is coming back soon. He's at hand. He's close. He's nearby. And because of this, we don't have to be anxious. There's an end to your struggles, Christian. Whatever it is that troubles your heart and robs you of peace, one day it will be no more. One day you'll be in the presence of your Savior and you'll be safe in his arms. When Christ returns and we're brought into the presence of our Father, everything that we're anxious about now will be the farthest thing from our minds and we'll only ever have peace in our hearts. Look forward to that day, Christian. It's coming soon. Verse six, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your heart and your minds in Christ Jesus. It seems odd, doesn't it? How does praying with thanksgiving help me to experience the peace of God? Well, it's a lot like when you watch those space documentaries. You see all these incredible images of the different stars and planets in the universe, and you see how overwhelmingly big they are, and you're reminded of how small you are in comparison. Church, when we pray with thanksgiving, we remember how big God is. We remember how he's sovereign over each and every affair of our lives and we remember how dependent on him we are. How in every circumstance he's provided for us and how he's never failed us yet. When we pray with thanksgiving, we remember that God's got everything under control so it's all gonna be okay. Church, when we pray like this, the peace of God guards our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. What an incredible promise. What an incredible promise. And more than this, I, I want to suggest to you that the key to understanding not just this promise itself, but the key to understanding the entire section here is this exact promise, the promise of the peace of God. Verse 4 says to rejoice in the Lord always. At the time of writing, Paul was in prison, and the Philippians were suffering. And he's telling them to rejoice. I don't know about you, but if I was in their shoes, Paul would be the last person in the world I'd naturally expect to hear this from, considering how much he suffered for the sake of the gospel. You don't expect to get a letter from somebody who's sitting in jail telling you to rejoice. What in the world does does he have to rejoice about right now? He's stuck in prison. He can't go anywhere. He can't do anything. All the pleasures and joys of life have been stripped away. But church, just like Paul and just like the Philippians, if we have the peace of God, then we can rejoice in any and every circumstance, especially when we suffer. And if we have the peace of God, then our reasonableness or a better translation would be gentleness will be known to all. Do you want joy in suffering, Christian? Do you want peace instead of anxiety? Then pursue peace in your hearts and minds by praying with thanksgiving to the almighty God of the universe and the peace of God will be your shield when trials come. 
It will quell every anxiety in your heart and bring every thought under submission to the sovereignty of God. Incredibly, though, we're not only promised the peace of God, but we're promised the very God of peace himself. And that leads us to the final way we pursue peace. We pursue peace by being holy. Look with me once more, verses 8 to 9. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Here we see two commands and one incredible promise. More than having God's peace, Paul wants us to have the very God of peace himself. But for us to experience the abiding presence of God in our lives, we need to pursue peace by being holy. So we're given two commands. First, Paul tells us whatever is true, honorable, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, worthy of praise, think about these things. Think about these things. Ponder on them. Meditate on them. Church, what we think about matters to God. Do you remember the greatest commandment? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. A huge part of our worship is what we occupy our minds with because what we allow ourselves to meditate on is ultimately what shapes our lives. Social media is the perfect illustration of this. We scroll through Instagram and TikTok or or YouTube for hours and hours, and we hear so many voices talking about what it means to live a good and happy life. And so many of them talk about the same things just over and over. Finding a job that you're super passionate about, traveling all over the world, owning all these nice things and building equity for yourself. And we stare at these videos and their voices get louder and louder in our heads until all we're thinking about is how we can achieve this kind of lifestyle. And we're doing everything we can to get it. We're spending money that we don't have, burning ourselves out, trying to achieve a a certain degree of success in our jobs. Friends, we become what we behold. So if we allow our minds to be captivated by worldly thoughts, then we will be worldly people. But if we meditate on things of a good virtue that are pleasing to God, then we will be holy people. Romans 12.2 says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. As we learn to think the way that God wants us to think, our lives are transformed and we become a people who glorify him. So church, meditate on these things. Think about the ways you can serve others. Think about how you can love and cherish your spouse. Think about the ways you can use your life to glorify God. And most importantly, think often and regularly about the glory of God and the gospel how he saved you, how he's adopted you as sons and daughters in Christ Jesus. 
Let your life be shaped by these things, not the influences of the world. What we think about is important because it helps us to live godly lives. So Paul gives us a second command. Verse 9, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. Throughout the book of Philippians, Paul's labored to show them what it means to live holy lives. At this point in the summer, we've almost preached through the whole book, so I know you guys know what I'm talking about. You know what he said. He's shown them what it means to be a faithful servant of Christ even as he suffers in prison. He's modeled a life lived with the singular goal of magnifying Christ. He's exhorted them to exercise unity and humility in their relationships and to consider everything else as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, our Lord. He's shown them what they need to know to live godly lives. And now he's saying, do it. Live it out. Think about these things. Be holy. Practice these things. And when you do, you're promised that the God of peace will be with you. Church, wherever you go and whatever you do, if you're living a life that's pleasing to God, then you can be confident that the God of peace is with you always. He's yours. You can know him and experience his presence in your life. And this is the antidote to every fear and failure, every trial and temptation, even at your lowest moments, when God feels the farthest, the God of peace is with you and he's with you always. That's incredible. This title that Paul gives to God, the, the God of peace, this is significant. He's saying that peace is not just something that comes from God. It's not just something that we get from God, but he's linking peace very tightly to the character of God himself. And church, there's no place we see this more clearly than on the cross. Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Church, our God is a God of peace, and he desires peace with his creation. All of us were once enemies of God. Our sin had fractured our relationship with him, and on our own, we had no way to make peace with him. But because he is not just God, but the God of peace, and because he has mercy on sinners like you and me, he allowed his only son, Jesus Christ, to be crucified and sacrifice for our sake. So that whoever believes in him now can have peace with God. That's our great hope, church. But if you're here this morning and you haven't yet placed your trust in Jesus, then I have to tell you, friend, that God is not only a God of peace, but he's a God of great wrath as well. And as you are now, you stand condemned under his judgment. But know this morning that there's hope for you in Jesus, friend. When you believe in him, his righteousness is counted as yours and you are made at peace with God. So don't wait. Don't hesitate a moment longer. Put your trust in Jesus now and you will be saved and you will know the God of peace. Peace. 
I said at the start that as we mature as Christians, God changes our lives from being marked by chaos to being marked by peace. But this doesn't just happen by accident. It happens slowly as we labor by the power of the Holy Spirit in conjunction with the Holy Spirit to pursue peace in our own lives. So church, as I bring this message to a close now, I want to encourage you to pursue peace. Pursue peace. Don't let Philippians 4 be lost on you. God is calling you to live a life filled with peace, friend. So follow his lead, and he will help you as you do. Please pray with me. God, your word is so grand and glorious, Father. It speaks to us. It's living and it's sharper than any two-edged sword. So God, I pray now that these words would not be lost on us. God, help us to pursue peace in our relationships when we find ourselves in conflict. Help us to pursue peace in our hearts and minds when we find ourselves being overcome with anxiety, God, and give us a great and abiding confidence that we know you and that we have you, the God of peace himself. In your son's name I pray, amen.